Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we ask that you would teach us more of your truth, that you would help us to know, receive, and share more of your love in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome. Glad you guys are here. Is this, this is working right, isn't it, Alex? Yeah, good. Okay, just checking. It's amazing to me how things can change in a moment. One of the um, pleasures I've had over the last number of decades is to be friends um, for a long, long time with one of the 12 people who've walked on the moon. And um, the thing that amazes me most about his story is how he got started. Because he tells the story that one, I think it's one Sunday morning, he's reading the paper, he flips to the classified ads, and he sees an ad from the newly formed NASA looking for astronauts. And he responds to it. And that's how this, this one request, that's how his whole journey begins with this whole thing. And um, I want to talk today a little bit about that notion in our spiritual lives, how, particularly with Peter, how it begins with one request, this one beautiful, life-changing request that Peter gets, and th how it also relates to us and the journey that we're on, the spiritual journey that, that we're on. And I want to look at both readings this, this morning. I want to look at the reading we had from 1 Corinthians and also the gospel that we had from Luke 5 and what they say about this invitation and about the journey that we're invited um, to go on. And as we start to look at this, I'm going to start by looking at Luke 5, where we looked at Luke 5, 1 through 11. And uh, just to start with a little bit of context, Jesus is by this big body of water, and we hear it by different names. So I want to cut, cut through a couple of names for a minute. Um, in our gospel lesson today, we heard that it was called the Lake of Gennesaret, but it's also called the Sea of Galilee. Other places, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. It goes by different names, but it's this big body of water. It's 13 miles long. It's eight miles wide. That's where Jesus is. And um, I'll say more in a minute, but it's also got this zigzaggy shapes on different parts of it, um, as I'll say in a moment. But that's the context of where we are. And one other sort of like nomenclature thing I want to say that I think everybody knows, but I just want to be clear. When it talks about Simon, that's Peter. We can use Simon, we can use Peter, we can use Simon Peter. I may use all three of those this morning, but we're talking about the same person, right? So the way this whole episode in Luke 5 starts is Jesus really being resourceful because he's by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching, and the crowds keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And at some point, he's got a problem because there's so many people wanting to hear him. And then he sees Peter and his boat, and he's in one of these like coves that make a natural amphitheater. And so he asks Peter, can we get in your boat and go out so he can use, take advantage of the natural amphitheater? And that's what he does. And so he goes out and he gets into that place. And we, we don't know exactly what Jesus was teaching. But given everything that, the little bit that it says and given everything he says throughout scripture, I think it's safe to say that he's talking about the kingdom of God. And what he's doing with that. And it's interesting to me that it must be clear that Peter knows something's going on here. Like Peter, Peter knows pretty early on that this is a prophet or an angel or that something somehow divine is taking place in this moment. And I want to pause there for a second because many of us at times aren't open to even, we don't even have the eyes to see the God moments or to see whatever's going on because we have different kinds 
of biases that come into play. Either we are closed down because we've been hurt and we're not open to hearing anything that could be divine, or we don't want to give up any control, or we don't want whatever. But Peter on this day is at least open to it, at least I think he is. But what we do know is maybe he wasn't open, but when Jesus is in the boat preaching, there's nowhere to hide, so he hears him. I don't know, one way or the other, he hears him and he begins to trust him. And I think, again, for many of us, or people that we know, this is where people sometimes live. Like people get sometimes, there's something going on with this. There's something in religion. Maybe that's as far as they can go. Most of the people in the world have some kind of religion. There's something going on there. Or within Christianity, like it's crazy. There's like 30,000 denominations or whatever. But there's something going on behind all that because people keep coming back to it, whatever. People get to this place where there's something going on. And certainly that's where Peter is. And whatever he's heard Jesus do, he knows that. And I think he gets to this place where he trusts him. And I'll say more about that in a second. But before we pick up the story, I think you got to pause for a minute to recognize that at the moment they're having this encounter, Peter might be feeling like a failure, but he certainly has had a failing night because he and his colleagues have been out fishing all night and they've gotten the big goose egg. They've gotten nothing. And the reason why I say they've learned to trust Jesus in some form or fashion at this point is because it's fine when Jesus is in the boat talking about the kingdom or whatever he's doing with his talking, but now he's turning, he's getting in their business into their expertise. He's going to tell them how to fish. He's going to get into their business and he tells them, go out to the deep and drop your nets. And they've been like, we did that all night. And we're, we're the people that do this every day. But they, they obviously trust him enough that they go and do it. And they follow up with it and they drop their nets. And then, of course, you know what happens next. They get this huge, you know, miracle load of fish that are breaking their nets. They're having to call for extra help. About that time, that's when the game warden shows up to check limits. <laughs> but they, they have this miraculous catch. And at that moment, things shift again for Peter. Because I think whatever, like Peter was thinking something's going on here. Now he's like, I don't think something is absolutely going on here and it's either this is this somehow the divine is present this is an angel a prophet god whatever this something's going on and peter's reaction is to suddenly realize his unworthiness and he drops to his knees and he says you know get away from me because i'm not worthy to be around you in this moment he's focused all on his own deficiencies in this moment because he gets how holy the one that he's with. One of the things that I love doing is I love reading um, old sermons from long ago. And so on the sermon we're doing today, I've seen part of a, of a sermon that was written in the 400s by the Bishop of Alexandria, Cyril. And I want to read part of what he says on this. He says, For this reason also Peter, carried back to the memory of his former sins, trembles and is afraid. As an impure man... He does not dare to receive the one who is pure. His fear was praiseworthy because he had been taught by the law to distinguish between the holy and the profane, between the holy and the unholy. And really, I think the story could have ended there. Peter's down on his knees. You're not worthy. Get away from me. And that could have been the end of it. But it's not. Because then we get this moment where Jesus gives him this um, absolutely beautiful life-changing request where he says come and follow me like you've seen this huge catch of fish 
We're going to go do this now with inviting people to God's kingdom. Come, come with me and do this. And he leaves, he, they leave the nets, they leave the stuff, they leave the boats, and they're, they're off. They respond to this beautiful, life-changing request. And then they're off on this journey. And I want to suggest that in some way, somehow, for all of us, sooner or later, we get this same beautiful, life-changing request where we understand that God is calling us to join him on a journey. And just like Peter, we don't, Peter had no clue where this was going to go. He had no idea how, where this was going to go or what the adventure that was ahead of him in faith, what it was. But he responds and follows. And we're given that invitation and the possibility of doing the exact same thing. And that starts our journey. And with that, I want to pivot and go to the first reading that we had from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, because I think Paul also is hitting on some of these themes. Paul um, is clearly making it out that this is a journey. In the opening verses that, that, we were, um, that Ashley read a few minutes ago, it, part of what he's saying is to, that, we, that we're in the process of being saved, that, it, that it's a process. It's a journey. It's not a moment. It's not a single event. It's not the magic formula whatever else it is, it's this ongoing process of being saved that we continue on with. And um, with that, we learn that, you know, Paul's very quick after that to tell as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, he's saying all of this is happening because of the power that we've seen in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he wants the people that are hearing this letter to get it. He says, look, all the apostles saw it. There are more than 500 people that saw it. Some of these people are still alive. Why don't you go find them? That's what kind of what he's saying. Go find them and talk to them about how they saw Jesus on the other side of the resurrection. And then he eventually comes to a place where now he's going to kind of come back where Peter was. And he's going to say, finally, he appeared to me as one untimely born, but one, the most unfit of the apostles. He's making this point that he knows his unworthiness. He knows the baggage that he carries. And he is the one who's going to come and say it's about grace. That it's about this gift that, that's given. And he's very clear to let everybody know he's not trying to hide it. He persecuted the church. Like he's the opposite. He was out to destroy the church. He's there encouraging the people who kill the first Christian for his faith. And you can read about this in the early chapters of Acts. He's all in that place. But he's not going to dwell there because he gets that there's grace. And the truth is, this is a big moment, I think, in faith that we sometimes just gloss over. Because when we have get something that there's something divine happening somewhere, we can begin to just focus on how unfit we are. I know for me, you know, I can think about it. I've been a person of faith all my life, but I can certainly remember this. I almost didn't go to seminary because I felt that I was unworthy. I know I've had a couple times in ministry where I'm like, I don't even know that I should be doing this because I'm not fit. Like we can easily let our minds focus on our baggage or how we're not worthy instead of letting our minds focus on grace. This comes down like in how we live out our faith here. I think about one of our volunteers who um, a number of years ago, he'd been, this guy had been in our um, congregation for many years. And I was, we were, as we always do, we need more volunteers. Um, but I was talking to him about, why don't you volunteer? And he's like, well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have my stuff together enough for that. I was like, well, 
actually none of us really have our stuff together enough for that. You know, that's part of what the, that's part of what grace is. And then he eventually volunteered and it's blessed him and it's actually helped him go further on this journey, further down the road. But if we're not careful, we can get to where we just focus on what's wrong with us and how we feel unworthy instead of accepting the grace that's there. And Paul is all about the grace. And he says that in our passage today, he's going to dwell on that. He's going to talk about, um, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me has not been in vain. He get all of this because of grace. And grace, I don't know how you guys define it, but the way I like to define it is, is it's, it's getting better than you deserve. It's God giving you better than you deserve. It's not about your baggage. You don't deserve this stuff, whatever. He's going to give you more than you deserve. You don't deserve God's love, but he gives it. You don't deserve to be God's child, but he makes you a child. That's what is at the heart of grace. And then where Paul goes from there, he, there's one more thing I want to point out from his passage on this journey. Because Paul then kind of gets for this moment, you know, I'd love to meet Paul, but he's got this personality. But So he, he sort of switches for a moment to kind of almost start to brag. He's like, well, and, and I worked harder than all of them, and I did whatever. And then he's very quick to be like, but wait a minute. It wasn't me. It was God's grace working in me. And this whole notion that living out the Christian life and on this journey is not about our own steam, but it's about letting God's, God's love dwell in us. It's about letting God's grace flow in us. It's about letting God's mercy work its way out in us. It's not that we have to be able to carry all this stuff and do all these great things. It's about just surrendering in a way that allows God to move and work through us. I want to end with a story that makes me think about how God can take our baggage and brokenness and all these things and do incredible things. This was an article that I read that was in the New York Times about four years ago. And it was a story about something that took place um, in Philadelphia. And uh, the story goes that back on this day, there was everybody met at the 23rd Armory in Philadelphia where they had 400 people that met. And they were meeting there to um, do a performance of a piece that was called The Symphony for a Broken Orchestra by David Lang. And here's what was really going on with that. Well, let me just say who some of the characters that were there, these 400 people. The youngest person there was like was a nine-year-old um, cello player, and the oldest person there was an 81-year-old oboe, oboe player. And everything in between, amateurs, professionals, people of the Philadelphia Orchestra, 400 of them in this big armory that had gathered. But the deal that was going on with this was that, I guess for a number of years, Philadelphia had kept cutting back on their funding of the schools. And one of the places that was hardest hit were the music departments. And so all the money to maintain all their instruments kept going down and down. And so they had all these instruments that were in disrepair, significant disrepair. And so this guy wrote this orchestra and called everybody together. And they came and then they handed out or brought all these different instruments. And so you had the guy who, shows, who was given a cello that was in multiple pieces. You had the violin that had no A string. You had the bow that had no hair left. You had, you know, the trumpet held together by duct tape. They had all of these different instruments that were out there. And then they start this, um, this symphony, this orchestra playing. And it, the story is told by the reporter that at first it was a little bit quiet while people figured out what they were going to do, how this was going to work. They had the music. But like the trumpet player who figures out his trumpet is not going to make any noise other than the clicking of his keys. So he starts to keep rhythm with it. Or the silhouette of a violin that's just making noise with the bow that's on it. Or, you know, 
all these different pieces, the French horn that only puts out little spurts every now and then. But they all learned, and the music rose and kept getting louder and louder, and it was playful, and it was joyful. And then eventually they, according to the music, they wound down by sections to where all that was left was a squeak of one last um, clarinet, and then it ended. And apparently it was, according to the article, it was incredibly moving. But that story made me think about exactly what God does with us, that he takes all of us with our baggage and our brokenness and invites us into this performance. And he's the one directing. And there can be this playful, joyful, amazing music that gets made in and through us in the most satisfying way. But it all starts with this one beautiful life-giving request to come, come and see, come and follow. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us. You know us by name. All 7.7 billion people in the world, you know us by name. And you call us on a journey. Not one we're worthy of, but one that you make happen by your grace. You take our baggage, you take our brokenness, and you make beautiful things. Lord, help us to receive that gift to answer your request. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.